Good morning, Grace Lamarada. Really good to be with you this morning. I love every chance I have to be back over here. I'm Kenny. If you don't know me, I'm one of the elders of Grace uh, at our Fullerton campus. And so we, uh, we got a swap going on this morning. Uh, Eric is over, Tonis is over at our campus uh, preaching, and I'm here with all of you, uh, some familiar faces. And again, even more than the first service, many that I've never seen, which is encouraging to me. Uh, welcome. If you're here uh, just recently, uh, I hope you're finding this place to be hospitable um, and warm, uh, but also uh, helpful in pointing you to Jesus. So hopefully that'll happen this morning as well. <coughs> I'm going to apologize right up front. There will be a fair amount of uh, coughing and sniffling this morning. The Lord saw fit uh, in his timing to uh, give me a week to prepare a message on trials um, from bed uh, with bronchial infection and sinus infection and fevers off and on pretty much all week through the, this morning. So if I just burst into sweat, don't worry, it'll pass and we'll get through it. So uh, Martha prayed for me before the first service, and I felt great during first service. So she, prayers of a righteous woman uh, accomplished much. So hopefully you'll cover the other two services. Uh, but why don't we turn to First Peter this morning. The other reason there might be some sniffles is we're going to talk about trials this morning, things that grieve us. And if you, if you know me, I've been around here for a while, if you know me, the older I get, the more my Pa Ingalls gene uh, kicks in. You know Pa Ingalls? Little House, The Sensitive Dad. All those episodes would end with the moment of him, you know, getting that tear in his eye and just getting choked up, something Half Pint did or something. And the older I get, that just gets stronger for me. So it's hard not to talk about things that grieve us with you, who many of you I know, and know your story. You know, we're just singing, you are good, you are good, and your love endures. And just struck me, you know, you can listen to that on the radio or on a CD, and it can bless you. But hearing and looking around a room of all of you, singing you are good and your love endures, when I know stories, is, is so much more edifying, isn't it? Encouraging to my faith, to yours. And so, so that is going to make me sniffle. My cold's going to make me sniffle. So uh, the audio is going to sound terrible on the web this week. But that's all right. I think we'll get the point across. First um, Peter chapter 1. Uh, as we start, just a little illustration. I want to get you to think about a time that you were somewhere that you were clearly not from around there. You were the one who stuck out like a sore thumb culturally. Maybe it was just traveling to the deep south or the uh, back east in our country as a Californian and, and, and you're, you know, laid back, you said dude or something and you just stood out as not from around there. Um, I just thought of the story. My brother, Seth, got married uh, to his wife, Emily. That's how that usually works. Uh, she grew up in Massachusetts, so she's an East Coast girl. And uh, when we were out there years back for their wedding, the rehearsal dinner was at this restaurant. It was a nice restaurant, but the bar was kind of seedy. And the night of the rehearsal dinner, there was a game going on with the Patriots. Uh, and uh, I, I think it was the pay. Uh, I'm, I'm not a sporty guy, so it could, I could have been basketball, and it was whatever team they would. Anyway, <laughs> the point is this: so one one of my brother's groom uh, groomsmen was Brett Beatty, and uh, who was from here, was a Laker fan. Uh, it must have been basketball. That's what it was. And anyway, so he was sitting in the bar watching a little bit of the game with all these New Englanders, and uh, and his team made a great play, and he 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 caught himself. He went yes. And then he realized instantly, uh-oh. <laughs> and the bartender looked at him and he said, are you rooting for Los Angeles? And he said, yeah. He said, get out of my bar. 
And Brett laughed, kind of like, ha, ha, like this. He goes, I mean it. Get out of my bar. And the guy's kind of next to him on the other side looked, and he got out of his bar. He came back into the rehearsal dinner. No lie, but he, he just stuck out right there. What he did, he was not from around there. Um, when I was in China uh, the first time, when Betsy and I went to uh, get, bring our, first, uh, our oldest, Limay, home, uh, Notice, I mean, aside from the fact that we're both six foot tall, white, walking around in China, we stood out physically, but, but even culturally, was just so aware all the time of things that we just did naturally were not the way things were done over there, just different. Um, you know, one example was uh, I had three Mandarin phrases pretty much. That's all I knew uh, the first time we went. Third time I went to China... About three phrases in Mandarin is all I knew <laughs> still. It's tough, you know. Uh, you know, I, I speak, you know, fairly decent Spanish and, and, and I'll go down to Mexico and I feel like I can use whatever Spanish I know and, and make up what I don't. And, and, and people give you a lot of feedback like, hey, I, I understand what you mean. You know, you try, try to meet you halfway. In China, it was very different. I'd use my three phrases and I was always left feeling like I said that wrong. I said that wrong. I didn't go up when I should have gone down. Anyway, so... Anyway, that's the side point. So the first time in China, I have my three phrases. Um, ni hao, which means hello. Uh, wo ai ni, I love you. I was ready for getting our little girl and being able to comfort her. Wo ai ni, uh, and thank you. She she. That was the one. I was going to use that uh, as much as possible. And so I was thank youing everybody. You know, we'd go to McDonald's and get my happy meal. Uh, or, you know, I guess I didn't get a happy meal, but. She uh, she, room service would come up. She she nurses in the medical clinic. I mean, I'm shesheing everybody. And I noticed by the time uh, the trip comes to a close that almost without exception, that was met with complete no response. I'd say sheshe at McDonald's and they just look at me and I'd, okay, and I'd take my food and so I came back and I asked Tom and Sue Kimber, who spent years uh, as missionaries in China, I said, Tom, what's up? I would say thank you and I would get nothing from people. And he got this big grin. He started laughing. He goes, I know Chinese people think that Americans are thank you crazy. He said, in China, you say thank you when someone has gone above and beyond what was clearly expected and they, and they really went out of your, their way for you and did something gracious, then you say thank you. But to thank someone who just did their job that they're getting paid for doesn't make any sense. So, oh, it makes perfect sense. The McDonald's, they're looking at me like, uh, I get paid to give you this Big Mac, so why are you thanking me? stands out like a sore thumb. The, the way that we acted was clearly showing that we weren't from around there. Why am I saying this? Well, in 1 Peter, I think uh, a foundational way that Peter understands the Christian life in this world as we wait for Jesus to return and establish his kingdom on earth forever is that no matter what culture we're in, even it's our own native culture, if we are born again to a living hope and God's spirit now dwells in us and is making us a new creation, that even in our own home culture, we will stand out in ways as not from around here. There's quite a bit of this in 1 Peter. Um, some of the responses that Peter uh, says that, that you might get uh, in the world as a Christian, chapter three, verse 15, people might ask you for a reason for the hope that's in you. You see, that's pointing to conduct that sticks out, right? There's something about you and, and, and maybe the, the joy that you show in the midst of what you're going through and you, you clearly have some, some sort of hope that I don't have. Can you explain the reason for the hope that's in you? 
It's an indicator of an alien sort of uh, life. Um, chapter 4, verse 4, Peter says, some might be surprised when you don't just join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Again, that's standing out is not from around here, just being surprised. Why wouldn't you just join right in with what we all do? There's many things that the Christian says, no, that's, that's wrong. That's not how God created us. That's not what God made us for, and, and it stands out. This alien life will show up in some of the things Peter's gonna exhort different Christians to that are very countercultural. Some of them really chafe against our American sensibilities of, you know, I have my inalienable rights, thank you very much. So for Peter to suggest that a slave that's a believer might endure harsh treatment from a master, um, returning not evil for evil, but evil for good, and even suffering for doing good, that's alien conduct, isn't it? That's strange. To encourage a, a wife with an unbelieving husband to continue to, to, to be a loving, submissive, um, supportive wife so that she might win him without a word by her conduct, that's strange. Peter's not talking in this letter about just general sort of being do-good kind of Christians, nice people. People of all kinds of faiths are nice. Peter's talking about conduct that stands out no matter what your culture is, as different. It's, it's, it's a gospel life. It's a, it's a life that's driven with an eternal hope and a confidence in the character of God and how that pertains to the, the hard things in life. A question you might ask as we get to these various uh, f- things that Peter urges us, ways he urges us to live, especially ones that make us go, I don't know about that, is to ask how might this conduct display the exceeding treasure we have in Jesus? How does that, that treasuring of Jesus in the heart evident in this sort of conduct? Or how is the greatness of my future hope evident in this sort of conduct? Or how is my confidence that God is just and he will judge one day demonstrated in this sort of conduct? Or my confidence that God is sovereign in his wisdom and timing and purposes, how is that demonstrated in this conduct is an important question. Last week, uh, one of the alien things about the Christian life that Eric uh, Tanis highlighted right out of the gate is that the Christian life is a rejoicing, a, a, a praising life. It's a radically God-centered, God-oriented, increasingly not self-exalting, but God-exalting life. It's a life that more and more is lived entirely for the sake of the one who saved me. It's a life of worship, not just in, in lip service and words and songs, but in, in, in conduct in, that in every way sh- proclaims the excellency of the one who called me out of darkness into light. It's a life of worship of God through Jesus Christ. And that's going to be alien in this world. And then right on the heels of that is our passage this morning, verses six through nine, right mid-breath as he's just bursting with praise at God who's merciful and according to his great mercy caused us to be born again and has this inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and it's kept for us and he's going to guard us through faith so that we will not fail to receive it one day. As, as he's sort of climaxed with, with worship, 
he gets to something else that I think is alien in the Christian life. It's an alien joy. The Christian life ought to demonstrate an alien, a strange joy, an ability to genuinely rejoice, authentically rejoice while being grieved, really grieved. Deep sadness, sorrow, hurt, simultaneously rejoicing. Let's read 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, this being all that glorious stuff he, he said is true for us as Christians. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, give us uh, teachable hearts. Uh, Encourage our hearts, Lord. Here in this room right now, if we took the time, we could fill list after list of, of, of trials that we are currently grieved by, little, big, some have lasted short time, some years, feel relentless. And Peter here is saying, Lord, that, that there is the, the possibility of rejoicing in these grievous trials, Lord. We want that. Pray your Holy Spirit would, would bring that about in us and I pray that uh, as you do it would be something that testifies to the truth of the gospel and the glory of Christ and the hope of our eternal future uh, in a way that draws others to know the same would you do this please in Jesus name amen so after this burst of praise at the beginning Peter makes it clear this isn't a naive joy this isn't Ned Flanders happiness oakley doakley everything's just okay even though it's not it's not pasted on um, superficial happy clappy joy Uh, it's a, a real joy that's growing in the garden of grief it's growing even though various trials are grieving these believers I think at the beginning here, he says various trials. He, he, he starts broad. This applies to all kinds of trials that grieve us. Even though in his letter, we'll see uh, w- one of the ones that he focuses on quite frequently is being mistreated for the sake of the gospel or the name of Christ. But that's not the only thing that tries us as Christians. And right at the beginning, he says various trials. Trials can mean uh, hardship or circumstances that make life hard. So natural disasters and, uh, and, and unforeseen hardship and sickness uh, and injury uh, and hurt by other people and being sinned against by others. All these are, are, are various trials. But trials can also mean temptation. Temptations uh, are also trials. Uh, think about this. Uh, as a Christian living in a world 
where, by and large, the world is, is set against the things of God. It would make sense then, like we sang in one of these songs, that um, this world's constantly at odds with me, we sang. That we're tempted in ways just by virtue of living in a surrounding culture that does not honor or acknowledge God. So living in a materialistic, wealthy, capitalistic, ad-saturated society like we live in can be a trial for us as Christians, can't it? Constantly bombarded with the temptation to want more than we need and to covet what others have that we think we deserve or to, to buy the lie that joy really consists of a wealth of possessions. And this is a trial, isn't it? Same goes for living in a highly sexualized culture, an image-saturated culture like we do where you know, ads on the sides of buses and, and magazines fold out things that drop out when you're not looking for them. And they're just surrounded by, by filth and that can, they can lead to lust and temptation and, and fantasy in the mind and, and, and uh, un, unrighteous thinking. And, and it's a trial for a Christian. I think all of these are fair game. Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now you've been grieved by various trials. Living in this world until Christ comes back as a Christian is not easy. I want you to take one minute to write down, make this personal for yourself. Whatever you got to write on in your Bible or your, your bulletin, what trials grieve you right now? Whether they're small, big, you don't have to look next to you to see if yours compare and you scribble yours out because the person next to you, well, that's really a trial. Mine's nothing. Just write down, what are trials that grieve you right now? Go ahead. I'm going to pause and give you time to do that without me yapping. We have something. Maybe some of you wrote things that are very recent. Um, maybe some of you wrote things that that's just been your whole life. I think these things apply to all of those trials. Three truths Peter wants us to understand about trials that will help us really be able to rejoice even in the midst of trials that these things can happen simultaneously, exist simultaneously. Number one, truth number one, trials hurt and it's okay to say so. You might think, well, duh. Of course trials hurt. And maybe you think, of course it's okay to say so. You say so all the time. You're just constantly telling everybody, gripe, gripe, complain about every little thing that doesn't go. I mean, sometimes that, that can be our tendency, right? As we just assume that, that all of life should be perfect and easy and smooth and, and the littlest speed bump in a day we're quick to, to give voice to that we don't like. But um, on the other hand, uh, you might be uh, kind of convinced by that lie or, or live according to this idea that the Christian response to hardship ought to be a stiff upper lip. 
Because like we've sung, God's sovereign over everything, sovereign over trials. He is wise. He has good plans. And so the good Christian response, the only Christian response should be to act like it. Don't whine. Don't cry about it. Just stiff upper lip. Maybe that's you. One pastor I read this week said, we can often think that being a Christian means we must always be happy in God, sweeping our grief under the rug of God's sovereignty. We don't acknowledge it, admit it, uh, grieve about it with God. No, 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 we just stuff that under the rug, rug of God's sovereignty and then smile in church as we all sing, you are good, you are good. That's not Christian. That's not somehow pious to pretend like trials don't grieve us. You know, uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 is writing to comfort believers who have lost loved ones. And you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, we don't grieve. There's no crying in Christianity. No. What does he say? He says, we don't grieve as those with no hope. We grieve when we lose loved ones, but we don't do it as those with no hope. It's a different kind of grief, but it's a grief. Paul didn't say, rejoice with those who rejoice and rejoice with those who weep. No, he says, weep with those who weep. He says, don't just acknowledge the grief of your own uh, suffering, but come alongside one another and acknowledge the grief of their suffering and weep with them. Acknowledge it. It's okay to say so. Now, there are different ways of saying so, right? There's ways that are not right for us to say so. Like I said a minute ago, just complaining, complaining and griping and grumbling against God, right? We see times in the Bible that God is not happy when his people grumble against him, right? Like Israel in the wilderness and grumbling against him, right? Complaining about him, calling his character into question and, and uh, bad-mouthing him, so there's a sinful way to, to acknowledge trials grieving us. But the Bible actually gives us examples of how to grieve in a godly way. The Psalms are full of Psalms of lament that are exactly that. They are expressing in profoundly real and raw and honest ways the painfulness of pain, but in a way that doesn't lose sight of who God is or um, turn against him in it. There's a difference between grumbling and lament I want us to consider. L listen to this. This is Tim Keller. He, recently he published a book on prayer and in it he deals with lament and talks about the difference between just complaining and grumbling and lament. He says, the Psalms actually show you that you can be unhappy in God's presence. The Psalms, in a sense, give you permission to pour out your complaints in a way that we might think inappropriate if it wasn't there in the scriptures. But on the other hand, the Psalms demand that you bow in the end to the sovereignty of God in a way that modern culture wouldn't lead you to believe. The psalmists, despite their intensity and their shocking candor, always pour out their white-hot feelings, this is key, to God, no matter how angry and despondent you may be, if you use the psalms of lament to give you words for your prayers, you will in no sense feel stifled or bottled up. 
Rather, the language of the laments are so startling, they'll probably help you be more honest about your emotions than you would have been. And here's where's the key, I think, for us. But the laments don't just help you be emotionally honest. That's popular these days. Just be authentic. Just, it's not just about emotional venting. He says, no, lament is more than that. They also bring you to the real God. Our great danger is that in the midst of our pain, we forget or deny that God is a God of wisdom, power, and goodness. And the psalmists, struggling as much as any of us, will nevertheless draw us back toward that reality and anchor us in it. You see the difference? I like that phrase. that we're, we're, God invites us um, to be unhappy in his presence. He says, I'd much rather you come in here with me and let's talk about it together. Tell it to me. Express it to me. For example, flip over to Psalm 13. Just, let me just give you one short example, just six verses, but it's a psalm of lament of David. And I, I think you can see how what Tim Keller's talking about, how, how, how David is very emotionally honest with God about his pain, and yet it's not apart from God. It's including God in it, and it's bringing this to God, his grief to God and appealing to him for help in it. Listen, let me just read just six verses. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? That's a little bold to imply that God might be forgetting him at all, right? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Answer me, God, he's, at, he's saying. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. Here's where it turns from just emotional venting. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. What does he do? He looks back. I've seen your steadfast love, Lord. You've shown it to me before. He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. It's a confidence that I believe it will come again. You were steadfast in your love. You will continue to be. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Wait, what? He just started by saying, how long, how long, how long? And he ends by saying, he has dealt bountifully with me. There's some perspective even that comes with talking to God in prayer like this, being honest and acknowledging the pain and, and asking him for help with, in, in the midst of it and keeping who he is and what he's promised in view. If we're ever gonna be able to genuinely rejoice in the midst of real pain, we're gonna have to acknowledge it honestly for God. If we, if we pretend like it doesn't really hurt, then we're never going to really actually deal with it. God's actually not going to bring us to a point where we can both grieve and be joyful. We'll probably just, on, in the long run, resent God and grow bitter or, or, or cold toward him. So before we move to the second point, let me ask you, are you in the stiff upper lip group? Does that, does that tend uh, to be you? You tend to, to think not only do you need to get dressed nice for church, but you also got to come in with your game face on. Got to come to grace group with your game face on. Got to interact with people, maybe even with God. You got to, you know, I'm, I'm good. 
doesn't hurt. I remember my, my little sister growing up, she's much younger. She was stubborn and strong and tough, and I was a, kind of a mean big brother. And sometimes we'd play this didn't hurt game where I'd, I'd pinch her on the arm or something, and she'd go, didn't hurt. She'd just look me right in the eye. And so I'd pinch her a little bit harder, and she'd go, didn't hurt. You know, me and big brother, I'm like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll see how, the, and we'll crank it up a notch. And I'd finally get to the point, she could have a tear score out the corner of her eye and she'd say, didn't hurt. She's still tough like that. <laughs> but is that you with God? It doesn't hurt. I'm fine. Maybe you'd ask the Lord this morning to help you be honest and actually bring your grief to him and talk with him honestly about it. Help him save you from just bottling up, bottling it up, and never really dealing with it. On the other hand, maybe you're a venter uh, and a complainer. I, I, this is, it so tends to be me. Just the littlest speed bump in a day can just make me grumble and complain as if God promised me differently than, than that, you know, two extra stoplights on the way, wherever I'm going. You need to ask the Lord to help you move from being someone who grumbles about what grieves you to someone who laments with God about what grieves you. So number one, Peter wants to acknowledge that trials grieve us. They make us sorrowful. They cause us pain and it's okay to acknowledge so. In fact, if we don't, I think we'll never really rejoice in trials. Number two, Peter says trials are necessary. It's not my word, it's his. Look at it. First Peter I left my finger there. First Peter 1, 6 again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by trials. You've been grieved by trials if necessary. Well, or in the NIV, it's a little bit uh, uh, softened a bit. It says you may have had to suffer, but it's still there in saying had to suffer. You may have had to suffer. Well, who says I had to? Who, who, who deemed it necessary? God, Peter implies. God considers trials necessary. They're necessary in his estimation. You know, later in three, chapter three, he's gonna say something similar. He's gonna say, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. If what should be God's will? Suffering for doing good. Turn that around. You can say, sometimes it is God's will that you suffer for doing good. That's a heavy truth. Chapter 4, verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God's will includes suffering and painful trials. And we ought to actually be in more encouraged that God deems these necessary than to convince ourselves that, that this, is, this is outside of God's hand and control and, and this isn't uh, according to his plan. Um, that might seem more encouraging than to consider that something really painful was ordained by God. John Calvin was writing on these verses and wrote, God does not try his people without reason. For if God afflicted us without a cause... That would be grievous to bear. That's more grievous. When, when, when Calvin considers, what if these painful things I'm going through um, are not according to a purpose and a plan of an, a perfectly wise and good and all-powerful God who is, 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 is ordaining these things for a good reason, 
If that's not the reason for these trials, that's too grievous to bear, is what Calvin would say. It implies that God does not give unnecessary trials. He's not capricious or sadistic. Oh, this will really hurt. He gives trials that are necessary. Well, necessary for what? Verse 7. Necessary so that the tested genuineness of your faith, skip down to the end of this for a minute, we'll come back to the gold part, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Erase that. I don't want to skip over that part. Let's actually deal with the gold right now. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. It's necessary, God says, to refine your faith. And he uses the, image, the, the analogy of, uh, of refining gold. He says, you know, gold is a precious, precious metal, but it has impurities in it. And so what do they do? Well, they melt it down to liquid and the impurities rise up to the surface. Those things can be skimmed off. And then when it's cooled, the resulting gold is more pure, more precious than it was before. And Peter says, trials are to your faith what that process is to gold. Our faith is precious. But it's imperfect, isn't it? Even our, even our little faith is precious to God. He says in verse eight to these Christians, he acknowledges their faith. He says, though you've not seen him, you love him. You, didn't, you weren't witnesses to Jesus yourselves, but having heard of him through us, the Holy Spirit has, has given you eyes to see uh, who he is and you've trusted him and you have affection for him as your savior and your Lord. That's faith. He says, though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. That's faith that they have. Trust in Christ. And I could say the same for so many of you here that I know and many of you here that I don't know. I assume that there is this faith here, an affection for Christ, a belief in him, and even a, a joy in him. But it's imperfect. None of us trusts God 100% perfectly all the time. Our trust is always in God and other things. It's just our tendency, God and money, God and the balance in my checking account, God and my status with other people or my acceptance socially, God and my relationships, God and my physical health. And God wants us to know that he is the only object of our faith that is worthy of our complete trust all of those other things will fall short. And he wants us to know it. He wants us to experience the goodness of placing our, our trust more and more in him and him proving himself then to be worthy of that trust, that process. God uses trials to make verse eight more and more real in our lives. It's that hymn that we sing. We're gonna sing it at the end of the service. When through fiery trials my pathway shall lie. My grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. 
The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Thy dross, the impurities to be skimmed off and consumed and thy gold, your faith to refine. Two testimonies uh, of people speaking of, of, this, of this happening, sort of testifying to the truth of God, bringing them into the crucible and coming through it, being able to acknowledge God is refining my faith. One is from the Bible, one is from last week that I read. First one is Paul in 2 Corinthians 1. I'll just sum up. 2 Corinthians 1, he's writing to Christians who have heard, uh, he, he reminds them of a time in ministry that he was so discouraged and depressed. He says, we despaired of life itself. We felt like we'd received the sentence of death. And then Paul says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So he acknowledges that there is a God who deems trials necessary and this, whatever this affliction was that made him despair of life itself, Paul says, no, this was to make us rely on God who raises the dead. And then he says in verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Do you see that refining happen there? Bringing him into the crucible, heating it up to the point where Paul just wishes he were, he'd rather be dead. Just take me now, Lord. And God delivering him through it. And on the other side, a greater confidence that God is a deliverer. And whether it's in, the short, in a short period of time or a long period of time, God will deliver us again. It's a little snapshot of God using trials to refine the Apostle Paul. And as you know, the Apostle Paul, that didn't happen to him once, but many, 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 many times, right? He came to Christ and, and Jesus said to him, I'll show you how much you must suffer for my name. He knew suffering. Second example of this that just stunned me this week, read this article on the Gospel Coalition blog by a, a man named Kyle Porter. He's not a pastor, he, he attends Matt Chandler's church down in, in Texas and he and his wife experienced, uh, to me, what it seems like about one of the most painful trials that, that you can imagine, that giving birth to a stillborn baby girl. Discovered the, the baby had no heartbeat just a few weeks before due date and, and he writes this article, the, art, the, the title was We Lost a Child and We Gained Something Greater. Got my attention, thinking about this passage. And he begins telling their story with this quote from, from Spurgeon. I, I want to read this and then I'll kind of sum up his story. But he says, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. Kyle uh, Porter writes this. He says, a month ago, I could not have known the depth nor weight of those words. Now I can. And he recounts all the details of that season of life, the pain and sadness of learning the baby had died, the pain of delivering the baby, the day of holding their little girl, naming her, burying her, picking out a casket, all the while surrounded by a community of believers who are just weeping with them. And it's what he said 
at the conclusion of this that really got me. I need to hear testimony like this. I'm 45. I'm not stranger to trial in my life, but I know some of the suffering in this congregation. And I, I... my, my, my biggest trial probably doesn't stack up to many things in here. And I n- need to be encouraged by people who have walked through deep, deep waters and can talk like this. Listen to what he says. He says, for a lot of us, myself included, Christianity's come easy. There's been no suffering. There's been no pain. There have been few questions. There's been no reason not to trust God and not to call ourselves Christians. And now there is. Now we have known unimaginable depths. The sorrow that flowed that week is an unspeakable thing. And we can truthfully say the Lord is good in both the joy and the sorrow, if not greater in the sorrow, he says. That's what we have tried to point to that we do not hope in our children, that we do not hope in each other, that we do not hope in our friends or our families or in anything outside the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. That is all in Christ alone. This was a wild reminder of that, one we didn't want but need. He says, my friend Nathan told me that until that week, loving the Lord amid sorrow this deep was only a theory for many of us. Putting a baby in the ground makes it real. And not just for us, our friends mourn deeply with us, which was as rich a reminder as I've ever had of God's purpose in ordaining a deep community of friends. And then he says, Peter would call all of this sanctification. And he quotes our passage here about testing the genuineness of our faith, which is worth more than gold and and will be found to result in praise and glory and honor. He says, if I'm honest with myself, this is a good thing. Would I choose this path? Never. Would I choose any part of it for myself or anyone I've ever met in my life? No. But it is ultimately good for me and for my family. And that's a really difficult thing to admit. As difficult as it is for us to admit, our Heavenly Father has precious gifts to give us through the crucible of trials, deep trials. I'm thankful for people who can testify to it again and again. Because on this side, maybe for some of you, you think about you've never had anything that monumentally difficult happen in your life. Well, there's the future. I have no idea what's in the future. And you might think, what would I do if? I'm encouraged to know that normal people, people who at one point would have said, "I, I never thought that would have been me, are able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord in something like that. Are you encouraged by that? Well, Peter says God brings trials by necessity to refine your faith so that he can reward your faith. Listen, he says the whole purpose is so that your faith, once tested, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One day the Lord will commend your faith. This faith is something that one day God will say, well done not because of something wonderful and awesome in you, but because your faith reflects his worth. You understand? How our faith actually magnifies the one our faith is in. And in the end, God will commend our faith and say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
or as Peter puts it at the end of this letter, when the chief shepherd appears, we will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's what God has in, in, in the long view for us. That's number two. Number three, just briefly as we finish, but so encouraging to me, trials have an expiration date. Trials are temporary. You might think, wait a minute, you don't know my trial. Peter here says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, underline that. That's an encouraging phrase. For a little while you have been grieved. For a little while. Peter is not saying that to diminish or minimize your pain. Or to say, that ain't nothing. He is saying it to highlight the, the, the scope and the glory of the inheritance and the eternal future that we have in perspective. Uh, I want to use an illustration that I totally stole. Francis Chan used this, but he illustrated something different, and it works just the same for this. So hold on here. I'm a visual person, and sometimes visuals help me. So this is our youth group's tug-of-war rope right here. But all right, just imagine that this rope is your life. Heading all out into eternity, you don't know that that ends in a blue trash can around the corner. For all you know, this rope just keeps going on and on and on forever. And this is your life. And this part right here is your life on earth until you die or until Jesus comes back. This is this yellow section right here. Christian, if you've been born again to a living hope and you have an imperishable inheritance that is undefiled, kept in heaven for you, even if every day of this life was painful, this is the most pain you'll know, the most grief you'll know. And then glory. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. It's hard to remember this, isn't it? When all we see is this. In our pain, we just tend to see this. And Peter's saying, no, 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 I want you to see this. It's for a little while. Even the pain that doesn't feel like a little while. And you know, and the reverse is true too. If you have never trusted Christ, then the Bible says actually that right here, all the pleasure and joy and comfort and happiness that you know here that's the most you'll ever know. See, in Christ, grief for a little while, joy for eternity. Outside of Christ, joy for a little while, grief for eternity. And it doesn't have to be that way because Christ has come and he died for your sin and he rose from the grave and all you need to do is trust in him and that finished work and humble yourself and say, forgive me, Lord, uh, on G- in, in Jesus' name. He'll forgive your sin. He'll cause you to be born again. He'll give you this inheritance. Would you do that this morning if you've never done that? Let me pray. Uh, Lord, you know every uh, grief in this room. You know, every hurt, every uh, painful trial, not just because you're all-knowing, Lord, but because you're sovereign and they are parts of your plan. And Lord, that is a a difficult truth for us to 
to swallow. Uh, Lord, I pray you would help us by your spirit to be encouraged by it this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who acknowledge the pain to you with one another. Um, but we, but we also uh, cry out to you for help to meet us and comfort us in that. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust your purposes and your plans even though we can't explain them and we can't point to why. And Lord, I do pray uh, that you would help us to persevere. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.